welcome to another episode of The Bottom Line. It's me, Jonna, of course, and today we will be talking about mental health. Uh, Mental health is a topic um, that I can say is very taboo in uh, many cultures um, and society, but um, I think my generation is uh, doing a great job of trying to raise awareness and uh, bring mental health issues to the forefront. Um, and so over quarantine, we all know that many of us may have battled with our mental health in ways that we never have before. I would say that's something that's definitely true for me, um, being in, in spaces where I was maybe lonely or um, going long times without seeing the sun because we're in quarantine. And so all these things can make it difficult as we are navigating, but I think it's especially important to understand how it affects uh, uh, families and communities of color. Um, There's already a lot to deal with as a person of color in America, but then also adding mental health and trauma um, and different parenting styles that can make it difficult for us to navigate larger society. And so that's why our mental health is especially important um, as we have to deal with oppression or different things that we have to uh, go through. So today I'm joined with uh, Nyla Bowers, um, a rising freshman at Cornell University, and uh, she will potentially be majoring in sociology. I know Nyla because um, she went to my school. She's just a year older than me, but uh, Nyla was a member of BSU, and so I know Nyla from um, the club and just seeing her and how she interacts. Uh, but Nyla knows this. I told her I listened to a podcast episode with her, um, I don't know, like a few, a month ago. And I was like, wow, like she's very well spoken. But what she had to say about activism and the way that um, she showed up, it was just uh, really great. And I was like, okay, she has to be on my podcast. But anyways, how are you, Nyla? How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here and be talking with you because you just have such so many great ideas and this is really exciting (laughs) thank you yeah no I'm excited for this conversation too um but of of course thanks for being here and uh thanks for being willing to have this conversation so I guess the first question that I want to ask um before we kind of get started is what's something that you've learned about your mental health over quarantine or over the past year and a half what have you learned about yourself and your mental health that is a very interesting question because something that I think we've all found is that like we've all learned so much about ourselves and spending so much time with ourselves and it's like torture (laughs) but um I can definitely say that um I've learned that I need to be more patient with myself and I think in general there's a, a very especially in people in our age range there's a culture of like we constantly need to be grinding and being productive and doing a lot of work. And sometimes we feel like if we're just allowing ourselves time to rest and give ourselves mental health days, which is, you know, along this topic, um, that we are being lazy. And I just think that that's kind of one of the biggest things I've learned is that that's not necessarily the case. And that sometimes you got to take it day by day, hour by hour and uh, be patient with yourself. That's good. I think uh, what you said about our generation and our culture and how the hustle culture that we're all in and experiencing, that's definitely something that I had to, like, understand about myself and how I viewed productivity um, and how it was flawed and how it, like, put unnecessary pressure and anxiety 
uh, that was weighing on me that I didn't need. Um, I definitely would say that what I learned about my mental health is um, just my idea of productivity was flawed and that I can't measure if I'm being productive versus someone else because we all have different lives um, that we're living. So, and um, also, like you said, it is okay to rest because I am still learning that. I definitely beat myself up (laughs) for like trying to rest. Yeah, and that's just, it, it puts you in a loop, it puts you in a cycle. It's, it's really important that we all just remember that it's okay to take a break. <laughs> exactly. Right. And I think, I'm like I said, I'm still learning that it is okay to take a break. And um, so, yeah, um, I think that also just looking at like mental health and the things that we experience uh, we in a lot of ways we kind of normalize trauma and we normalize uh, going through uh, difficult things but pushing through and not saying that if you go through something difficult um, you have to be somber and you know be in a state where you can't work through it but I think that throughout history we've learned to um, kind of um, I don't know live with our trauma instead of having productive ways of managing it and so kind of first I want to talk about what trauma has looked like in our history of black Americans history but also just trauma in communities of color in general so I guess my question is like can you answer what has trauma looked like uh, for us in history yeah, so um, that's a very loaded question, and there's so much, so many different ways that it, trauma has manifested itself in our community. Like, if you even look at like our our everyday behaviors or how we discipline our children or like how we educate ourselves or you know what measures do we take to protect ourselves, it seems like trauma is infused in a lot of different aspects of our everyday lives, and. You know, it's wild to me because it even will affect, you know, things outside of just like your perspective of like how you see the world. It it affects, you know, your physical health. It affects your psychological health, obviously. It affects your relationships that you have with people. And I just think that like in a more, you know, in a perfect world, maybe our trauma would have dispersed itself as generations, you know, have passed down. But unfortunately, we see that the trends continue. Um, and I think that's the thing that, you know, actually I read somewhere, we call it cultural PTSD, where, like, mm-hmm. we are coping with our trauma extremely poorly, and we're not allowing ourselves to release those traumas. And it's very common and normalized in communities of color. And I just think that's such an interesting topic that we don't often give ourselves the time, opportunity to unpack. Yeah, that's really good. I think that point about uh, cultural PTSD um, and how we don't take care of our mental health, I think because it's stigmatized in our community. And I think also your point about um, it being passed down um, and the idea of generational trauma, I would say in a lot of ways we are still still uh, dealing with the trauma of slavery. And so obviously we know the effects of slavery are still present 
in the way that we see um, black community or uh, systems of oppression in the way that they've been designed, but on a, um, I don't know, a psychological level. And when we think about our mental health, um, that has kind of, like you said, been infused in the way that we parent and the way that we guard ourselves against society. Uh, because you kind of have to approach society um, on defense as a person of color. And so that means that in some ways you can't be vulnerable in a public space because you have to shield yourself against uh, racist comments. And so this is and then on the other side of it, racism is uh, damaging internally. It, it's emotionally burdensome. It's um, it has a physical manifestations on our body. It's spiritually demoralizing um, and mentally challenging. And so the fact that we've had to deal with these things for 400 plus years and then continually deal with them, it doesn't make for us to be equipped to deal with our mental health in productive ways. Yeah, exactly what you said about even slavery still affecting black people today in terms of our mental health and, and so many different social aspects of our lives. You know, a lot of people will argue, why do you still talk about slavery? That was so long ago. Well, remember, yes, it may have ended some time ago. However, you know, we are still, you know, facing a lot of the, I guess you could say like biological effects of slavery you know, and a lot of the social, cultural norms around slavery. You know, in fact, um, something that we talked about a little bit in AP Biology in high school is uh, a topic called epigenetics. And basically what epigenetics is, like, you know, in short, is the study of, like, changes of the structure of your DNA as a result of, like, your environment or whatever experiences you've lived or your, you know, ancestors have undergone. So the the effects that you experience in your life can affect people generations and generations after you. And that's what I mean when I say um, a lot of times I feel like we've inherited trauma because we literally are getting biological biologically affected by things that happened to our ancestors during slavery. And I just, you know, I often ask myself, you know, why do we talk about slavery so much still? And we have it right there in our genes. It's hard to, mm -hmm. you know, have these conversations about why do we still, you know, exhibit XYZ behavior? Right. Why do we feel like we have to protect ourselves in this way versus, you know, letting it go? And the answer is it's because it's not as easy to let go when it's written into your genes. And it's so crazy to me to think about the fact that that is the truth. Wow, that was deep. <laughs> like, actually, I think that is a great point. Um, that to say that trauma is written into our genes and the way that we approach um, mental health has to be a priority. But the fact that it's not um, shows how backwards it is and how these the way that systems are set up and the way that we've been conditioned and internalized to think about ourselves and, and just the world, um, it's kind of working against us. But I don't think that's a point that we should use to kind of discourage us 
that's a point for us to see here's a way that we can kind of improve moving forward i think that your point about um epigenetics and how trauma because i also the trauma that you experience as a child will shape who you are um as an adult and so um obviously to the point of how you defend yourself against certain things things that might be triggers um but also biologically it shapes you and so thinking about that in a grand scheme as far as generations go um and then um I am a Christian so the way I look at a lot of things uh, maybe in a spiritual uh perspective but I can't avoid thinking of the term um generational curses and how the trauma that we've experienced from slavery um affects us today and so Angela Rye said this quote uh that we as as far as black meaning black people we're tired and we've been tired since our birth carrying that exhaustion in our birth and so thinking of what maybe our ancestors got went through or maybe what uh your mother went through when you were in her womb and how that has effects on who you will be um once you're born and how you live in society Yeah, that's that is that's like it is really crazy to me. And thinking about it from a spiritual point of view, it is one of the reasons I think that you know a lot, so many people, especially in the South, so many Black people in the South are so deeply connected to their spiritual roots because there is so much of that generational cultural PTSD, and you know being able to connect in my view, being able to connect, you know, yourself to some form of purpose that does not directly put you in a place of commodification or Mm -hmm. being dehumanized or directly oppressed against is hugely important in, you know, still being able to, to navigate a world that does not welcome or accept you. And so I think the spiritual point of view is often overlooked, but you know, pretty interesting if you think about how it's applied to one's everyday life and I guess sort of combating trauma. That's really good. And I think um, I do like when you talk about the spiritual component and how that's important for overcoming mental health struggles, I think that people will ask, well, how can you, um, you know, People will say, how can you practice a religion that was used to oppress you? Um, Or think about the history of maybe... And this is just my religion. So any spiritual, whatever you do spiritually, it doesn't matter. But I think that your point about thinking about things uh, spiritually and understanding how that can be used to overcome, because it's easy to be hopeless. um, And I find that... and And be overwhelmed by anxiety. And so I know that um, the Bible says that in Matthew eleven thirty, uh, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is Jesus talking, talking about um, how and how we can overcome our struggles, essentially. And so things like this are important for us to understand that we can kind of give off, give over uh, some of the weight that we choose to carry. And even to answer the first question that I asked, what have you learned about your mental health over the past year and a half? I would say I learned that 
Um, What I decide to be anxious or worried about is a choice also. A lot of it um, is about what we've been through through our generations and what society brings on us, but I can choose in, in the way that I go about responding to it, or I can choose, or I have a choice in what I um, decide to, um, I don't know, like let have an effect on me and my emotions. Yeah, and I think the power of, of choice is really key here. Because oftentimes when we talk about conversations of mental health and, you know, oppression and racist history in our country, oftentimes we are learning constantly about what's being inflicted upon us, what's being done to us, and in that you have no choice, in that you're stratified and you're trapped. But if you, you know, if you have something to hold on to that gives you choice, then that is one way that you can ultimately, I feel like, support yourself in kind of releasing that trauma um and especially in the way that like trauma is manifested in itself today i feel like a lot of spirituality directly combats like holding on to a lot of you know modern day manifestations of trauma specifically in our communities yeah that's really good um i think that also understanding um, the history and of trauma and how it has been um, not dealt with historically explains the way things look today. So even looking at something like the healthcare system and how historically um, black people were believed to not feel pain. And so this contributes to how we have internalized our own health and mental health. And so to think that um, black people can't feel pain or they can take um, greater, I don't know, amounts of pain because they're superhumans and they have super bodies and um, or their things or objects for experimentation. I think in some ways we've internalized that um, and, and not acknowledging um, mental instability or, or invalidating it because we think that we should be able to take on um these great things that are really things that we can't uh be able to um sustain yeah yeah totally i totally agree with you there and there's also this this stigma and this idea from us internalizing you know these beliefs that we are allowing ourselves to become vulnerable or you know you know put, put ourselves in a position of harm when we address properly our concerns about our mental health. And I think that 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 ties into and affects so many different aspects of our lives. For example, parenting, you know, how do, how are children affected by these, how we internalize, you know, addressing trauma or addressing mental health concerns? How are schools structured around, you know, addressing a lot of these harms? If we take a look at even just, you know, public schooling systems, what we'll often find sometimes is like, and we talked about this, you know, a while ago, is how, in, especially, this is a trend present in communities of color and communities of low socioeconomic standing, the idea of the school to prison pipeline, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, but if you're not, basically what happens in the school to prison pipeline is 
students coming from underfunded or under-resourced communities and schools will often be subject to, you know, higher or more excessive forms of disciplinary action for, like, regardless of, you know, the context or circumstance of, you know, what their quote-unquote crime was. So they're being penalized from an early age um, and expected to behave as young adults when they're children. And instead of being in spaces that foster their sense of self and changes their behavior for the better, there being spaces where they're constantly penalized and punished. And actually, in many cases, in a lot of public schools, there are incentives for pushing students out that need help. And I, I believe that I read a study that said that neurodivergent kids are the ones who actually are most overrepresented in people who are affected by the school to prison pipeline. And it's it's completely absurd, but I see reflections of how we raise our children and how this school to prison pipeline is connected. Like the whole idea of like zero tolerance, like regardless of, of the circumstance, regardless of what you've done, you might have to suffer extreme consequences like expulsion or suspension for, and you know, you see cases where like someone brought a pair of fingernail clippers to school and then they get, you know, suspended for it because the zero tolerance policy states that if you have this or you do this or you're in possession of something that could put someone in harm's way, despite your intention, you could get suspended. And if we see so many children of color who are being put out of schools, expelled, they have a bad record, they have terrible run-ins with authority because they know of their relationship with authority and police figures in their school and their hallways, then slowly but surely over time, these children are neglected, their needs are not being met, they're not able to learn properly, they're not able to achieve higher education. And what happens when you cannot achieve higher education, you don't feel safe enough to learn in your own school, well, then you go and you end up doing things that are not contributing to your well-being. And I just think that, like, that in itself is a real-life example of how, you know, a lot of the the trauma and the history and racism is actually inflicted upon us once again. And so you have to end up relying upon things, other things, to give you more control. Yeah, that was really good. And there's so much from what you said um, to unpack. I think that um, what we can see here is kind of two things that I'll uh, say about it, even though there's much more to say. I think that first, looking at the school system and how um, the school to prison pipeline, which affects uh, black schools or low income schools or schools of color, um, and how students that are troubled, quote unquote, um, how they are dealt with. They are dealt with um, harsh rules and with police. They are dealt with zero tolerance. Um, they're dealt with law and order, quote unquote, instead of if they have tr problems at home or if they misbehave in school or, or any, even if they don't misbehave, but your uh, strictness on them instead of being met with a counselor or someone that they can talk to, counseling, some something that can help them find productive ways to deal with their emotions or deal with um, their mental health. And so in that way, we see that mental health is viewed as a white privilege, quote unquote. And so it's something that 
uh, black kids or kids of color don't have the right to um, have in school. They don't have that right uh, to have good mental health or uh, good sources that help them deal with whatever they're dealing with in life. They're met with uh, authority that doesn't know how to uh, properly, I don't know, interact with students. And so this idea that mental health isn't a privilege that everyone should have is flawed. Um, and that and that also is backwards because if we look at the history of um, our our history it should be our mental health should be a priority and quickly I'll say the second thing that we see here is how normalized um, not caring for our mental health is and something as simple as our households and our parenting or something as simple as going to school every kid goes to school and so when at school you're met by the police in your hallways that does something to you mentally I I can't imagine walking outside of Payson and having a police officer walking in my hallway imagine what that does to you and so that's the kind of thing that is traumatic or being thrusted into the criminal justice system uh, for something as simple as violating a simple a school uh, uh, an absurd school policy and so normalizing these kinds of things make it um, difficult for us to overcome but then it makes it seem like well why do we why do I need to uh, work on my mental health it's a part of my everyday life yes exactly that normalization of very symbolic and very impactful you know I guess you can say tools of oppression is a huge part of the problem and I think that this ties back into like black parenting and you know trying to raise children is you want to protect them and you want to keep them out of harm's way. You want to avoid them having run-ins with authority. So now what do you do to avoid your children being getting in trouble? Well, if you don't have appropriate ways of acknowledging or addressing that trauma, then you will inflict the same amount of disciplinary, like excessive discipline onto a child that probably needs social emotional learning skills and the resources and the tools to you know, unpack a lot of the issues that you have. Because imagine, like you said, walking outside of, you know, walking near school and you walk through the hallways, you see a police officer. What does that say to a kid? Am I a criminal? Am I a bad person? Well, now that I've accepted and internalized that message, there's no point in me trying to fix anything. This is my life. So if I behave outwardly, if I get in trouble, I'm always going to be penalized for it. What difference does it make? And that leads into a whole other snowball effect of behavior. And, you know, even it can be seen in like violence in our in our communities or and this is not to say that this is like um, the fault of parents and, right. you know, things like that. This is very clearly showing a systemic issue, a historical issue. And it says so much about our communities when you see underfunded schools that don't have the funding for counselors and would benefit from pushing out their students that are struggling, then how do you, how do students learn, you know, in a space so important to handle social situations like this? Exactly. And if we can't learn in a school setting how to um, get those resources or how to deal with our emotions, we grow up 
with flawed ideas of who we are, of our identity, of our mental health. And it makes it difficult for us to unlearn what we learn um, and internalize as kids. I think also I want to ask the question, what is the source of our community's lack of regard for mental health? And so we've kind of talked about already how we've been desensitized to so much. Um, I think that in a lot of ways we um, in our everyday life, we just talked about the school to prison pipeline and our parenting, but. We relived the death of our black brothers and sisters by the hands of the police. We've always had to um, vicariously live uh, through the death of our brothers and sisters, whether that is on the plantation and um, or the mistreatment of them by society. So on the plantation or and, and Jim Crow watching someone being lynched and having their body there um, for everyone to see these kind of things. Um, kind of make us desensitized to um, something that's actually traumatic. And I think that it's when we think about history and how uh, we can see people being whipped um, on the plantation or being lynched, um, and we think how absurd that is, we think about today and looking at Chicago, how I would talk to people that live on the west side of Chicago and there's people being shot every night of the summer having multiple shootings and people are just saying at this point what can I do you know like that kind of we've normalized something so traumatic as shootings that happen every night or a police officer why is that the norm for our generation why is that a norm for the black community and so I think that's one source of our lack of regard because we become desensitized to so much that really has a heavy burden on our spirits um, and our and our um, I don't know our mentality. So I'm going to ask you that question: What is a source of our lack of regard for mental health in our community? I mean, yeah, you said it so well. Is that normalization? Um, but furthermore, what's really so funny? It's not actually funny, but what's very commonly seen is this idea of like, well, we still have to do our thing. We still have work to do. We still have to, I still have to get up every day and figure out how to, you know, live my life. Parents still have to wake up every day, figure out how they're going to feed their children. They still have to go to work. They still have to come home. And if people are shooting down the street, what can they really do about that except, you know, sigh and move on? It's a very sad reality, but there's this part of what helps us normalize everyday, like serious everyday problems is that mentality of like, well, I, I still have to get up and go work. You know, we don't have that privilege of being able to say, let's do something about this because you don't have the time or the energy to when you're already balancing, you know, having a, a regular life, a regular job, having a family, on top of a lot of the traumas that you're experiencing with, you know, being commodified every day, seeing your, your children, your sons, your cousins, your family getting shot and killed all the time. You know, it's a very, at some point you start to desensitize yourself to outside problems for the sake of self-preservation. Mm -hmm. And it's not a selfish motivation. It's a survival, you know, issue it's a it's a matter of 
I still have to pay my bills. (laughs) And when, you know, when you have that lack of ability and you also now have that, you know, desensitization to it, we normalize it and it's a cycle and it continues. And so when you need that mental health service, you don't think of it as I need help like you would if you broke your leg you would think of it as this is my everyday life and there is no need for me to see anyone because what can they tell me that I don't already know and so it's a very it's a problematic issue yeah that's so good um what you especially that last point but everything you said is so good I think to answer or to respond to the last point of when there's a mental health issue the fact that we can say this is my everyday life, why is this something that I need to address, uh, that's a problem in itself. Um, but I think what you're saying about how it's dangerous to desensitize, I think that we've kind of conditioned ourselves. That's something that we've um, we've conditioned ourselves to normalize trauma. But I think your point about work and how... Um, like this is a root of black exhaustion it it stems from us being asleep deprived and um because we can't sleep because we have work to do we can't rest because uh we have to continue to uh, get up and provide for our families and so we feel like we have so much to do and we're almost afraid of what will happen to us if we rest um we're afraid that if we take a moment to ourselves um, we will miss out on an opportunity or instead of fighting against it. I think also to, to understand our history, um, our history is of, of fighting oppression, of uh, coming against the powers that are trying to, uh, I don't know, oppress us and that are working against us. And so we have to constantly be on go because if we step back, that just gives um white supremacy and another opportunity to overtake us or or something of that matter so we don't have time to rest because we don't trust the people that are in control and so we have to continue to fight against us I think um the other half of that is the fact that we have to work 10 times harder which is something that I've always heard my entire life this idea that because I'm black, because I'm a black woman, I have to work 10 times harder to be noticed by, um, I don't know, college, since that's upon me right now, or to be noticed at a job, um, or to get a good education, or to be on par with my peers, I have to work 10 times harder so that I can be at level with them. That is so much work that we put on ourselves that is so much work to do and although it's true that doesn't give us the um opportunity to say I deserve to rest because I feel that I'm gonna miss my opportunity or I'm gonna let someone run ahead of me if I take a break um to restore my soul that is so like what you said just kind of hit on another level and i think for so many people you know so many young black youth listening to this that is a very common theme you know i was thinking when you said that wow like we go to a pw well we you know many of us went to this pwi institution 
And a lot of what happened the entire time was the sense of imposter syndrome because no matter how hard we worked, we were always like made to feel behind. We were always invalidated. Our thoughts, our opinions were invalidated. If we wanted to be heard, we had to scream from the rooftops. We had to do organizing and learn how to become leaders in ways that a lot of students don't end up having to do, you know, at such a at such an early time in your education, you know, and I'm thinking back to a lot of the things that BSU had to do, for example, or that we felt that we had to do to fight against a lot of the oppression that we experienced. Um, it's just ridiculous. We would spend all nighters working on drafting documents and working on policies and meeting and talking with people across the city and, you know, we felt that it was our burden to fight against something that was so much bigger and so much older than us. Mm -hmm. uh, a long history of oppression and a long, a very deeply rooted system that's already well established. We felt, well, we can't go to sleep because, yeah. you know, tomorrow we have more work to do. Anytime anyone, anytime anything major happens in our community, you know, there. Anytime there's like a new unfortunate loss at the hands of police brutality, the first thing that so many POC youth will say is, well, we have so much work to do. Mm -hmm. And and it's every single time. And oftentimes I wonder, how is it affecting our mental health to put that weight upon ourselves? And how is this allowing us to continue to normalize behavior that is only, you know, affecting us in a harmful way? So I just think that like that lack of regard manifests itself in ways even where we think we're being productive, we're unfortunately, you know, further pushing ourselves back into this loop. And instead of giving ourselves the opportunity to rest and reach out, we, you know, stuck we suck it up and we move on because we have work to do, essentially. Yeah, that's really good. Um, this this is something that I felt, you know, like I, there's no time for sleep. You know, I, I have to get up. I have work to do. Um, I don't want to fall behind. I have, um, and like you said, this idea, like this burden that we put on ourselves, um, it's been there forever. And so, like you said, we are teenagers, right? Who are we really? Who are we? Because we're trying to fight, like you said, systems that have been here since the nation was first established, right? That's unbelievably hard um to say the least to even think about like working against and so um but to think that we we can't rest when we deserve a rest we deserve to rest but not allowing us to take a break kind of hinders our work and it hinders our um um ability to work against systems or to be effective in our work because you're tired you know you're physically tired um but you're also mentally and emotionally drained and and thinking about it racism is so draining right it's a heavy burden and you can we can say this um a lot that people feel burdened when something like this happens and so and here we go back to the point about choice taking a choice making the choice not to decide that this is too much for me and I think that what we need to be okay with is understanding that we can say it's too much. I think we're afraid to be vulnerable in the fact that some things are too much for us to handle. But we can rely on 
we and we need to have collective mental health days just as we have collective marches and things like that we need to collectively say at this moment this is too much that doesn't mean that I can't revisit my work when I feel restored and rejuvenated um but I'm going to take a break yeah absolutely absolutely I just think about how so many so many times I personally would feel like I was almost benefiting the system that is causing me to feel this way in the first place if I didn't wear myself yeah. out. And, you know, something that we, we have been talking about and discussing was like, if this affects my mental health and I'm 18, 16, 17, you know, high school aged or youth in general, how, how does my brain, how's my brain affected? Yeah. How am I physically affected? Am I going to, you know, feel this, uh, feel the effect of this for the long term? Is this going to affect me in my adulthood? Is this affecting me in my transition to independence? And, you know, this is what I, what I mean when I say it's a loop because you find yourself feeling these things as a young, a young person. And if you never get to grow out of it, you never give yourself the opportunity to address your problems, whether that means that you go seek help, you get counseling, you see a psychologist, you talk to a doctor, or you give yourself mental health days or, you know, even better, do both, you know? Right. If you don't do those things, how does that affect you later on? And I think it's very interesting and complex because in a way, in order to release these traumas, we have to put ourselves in a place to be hurt again. Mm -hmm. um, because we have to be vulnerable. We have to open up to someone. We have to open ourselves up to potentially being judged or facing, you know, assumptions being made about us the same way that racism and oppression does in order to kind of jump over that hoop of like, you know, I'm not coping with these things properly. And so it's so ironic. And so instead of being able to face that vulnerability and address the issue, unfortunately, you fall back into the loop of I'm not about to put myself in a circumstance where I'm to be judged by someone who doesn't know me. What can you, like, again, what can you tell me about my life that I don't already know? And you, if you can't offer me solutions, if you can't solve racism, then why do I need to come see a psychologist? Why do I need to come see a counselor? And I feel like that's a lot of the thought process for so many people. Um, but also in, in, you know, a lot of times, a lot of contexts, there's no accessibility to these things. Right. Again, because of the systemic racism that affects socioeconomic outcomes and it affects people of color disproportionately. And so, again, you know, it's very difficult to address because it's hitting you from so many angles. Yeah, that's good. You said lots of good things. Um the first thing you said was how you felt that if you took a break, it's benefiting the system that's working against you. And that resonates with me so much. That's something that I felt um, on debate. And I really wasn't enjoying debate, but I felt like if I quit, I'm doing exactly what they want me to do. They want me to give up. They want a reason um, for to say that um, I'm a quitter, that I wasn't um, fit to do this sport anyway I'm giving them a reason to say that um, I'm not cut out and all the reasons they were telling me that I shouldn't be on the team they're I'm making it true if I give up when really girl it's not about that it's about the fact that this is damaging to you and if you're having anxiety and panic attacks why would you endure something and so that is such a great point about how 
we feel that if we take a moment for ourselves, we're doing exactly what, quote unquote, they want us to do. The, the systems working against us want us to tap out. And then also you made the point about, but what does that really do for me now, but in the future? And so um, listening to Angela Rye's podcast episode with one of our guests, uh, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, they were talking about his book, but they were talking about how self-care is so important for healing in our communities. And he says that um, Martin Luther King and how he when he died, he had the heart of a 60 year old as a 39 year old at, in his autopsy because of the stress and the heartbreak and the death um, and the death threats that he experienced all in his life. How this has real impacts on us. He was 39 years old and his heart was functioning and working like a 60 year old because of all the pressure that he endured um, and the death that he uh, was that was wished on him but the death that he witnessed and just everything that this has real effects on us and so we have to prioritize um I don't know dealing with our trauma and we have to prioritize self-care to work on healing um in the long run for ourselves but you know I think that all of that leads up to like that that idea of like you know not only is there that physical effect, that psychological effect, that developmental effect, whatever word you want to use for it, it's, you know, it's very deeply impactful in a large scale way. And so I think a lot of people think of what racism really is because it's such a general word and it's, you know, so many people debate what it means and what it feels like and how valid is it that so many things, you know, come down to racism it's hard for people to kind of pinpoint what does this mean and why do you keep on talking about it and on a small scale on a personal scale you can say oh yeah because I feel like I have to do this or otherwise they're gonna prove I'm gonna prove their point if I give up and now I'm burnt out and now you know I have no passion for what I was what I initially felt passion for I don't have the energy I don't have the fuel for it or on a more large scale lifespans being shorter people Mm -hmm. suffering serious you know um medical problems and that also being passed down a lot of those habits and you know the belief that i'm supposed to hustle and grind and you know if i don't then who i'm not benefiting my people and i'm not helping making change and and now you know 30 years later I'm grinded out. Like I can't do anything else. I don't have the energy and motivation to, and that burnt that, that burnout is not just like personal, but you know, I guess my point is that that burnout is affecting us in a larger scale in more ways than one. It's not just a personal issue of like, I no longer have the passion or, or the energy, which what we were talking about earlier, um, to address my traumas and address my mental health. But I also now fast forward a couple decades later and physically burnt out and I physically don't have the ability to carry any more burdens. And the body has memory. Right. We read a piece in African-American literature and I believe it was by Claudia Rankine. And one of the, the points, the, one of the major things that she said in that book, the book was called Citizen, by the way, was that the body holds memory and the body carries a lot of the it remembers a lot of the things that happens to it throughout, you know, your time living on this earth. And so a lot of the things that you suffer from and a lot of the things that you hold on to, you, you, 
you know, you have to deal with that for years and years and years to come. And so, again, yeah, it all just ties back into that idea of burnout and, like, you know, you don't want to give up, but if you don't address the issues, then you end up experiencing, you know, the effects of your body holding on to so much of what you're going through in your daily life and not giving yourself the opportunity to rest from. Yeah, that's good. I think that um, you just have so many good nuggets. Like, I don't even know where to start. Um, But I think that is really good about um, burnout and how our thinking can be regressive and it's counterintuitive. Our thoughts of, I always have to be on go because if I don't, then I'm letting someone pass up, uh, pass me up. But ultimately, not taking the break is what um, allows someone else to pass you up because you just don't have it in you. I think that your point about how this has two effects in the now, but also in the future and life expectancy and, and overall health for our communities. If you are physically unwell, because your mental health manifests on your body. I know this from my own personal um life and how I know when I'm stressed when I feel sick and when I have a headache but also the point about Martin Luther King and how his heart um was didn't match his age or whatever but just like looking at those two parts of our mental health um and understanding how it's greater than you right and so kind of the the best thing we can do for ourselves or the best things that we can do for our communities is the best thing we can do for ourselves. and so not because this work is taxing right it's taxing to be a social justice advocate it's taxing to even just be a normal regular black person right or a regular person of color this takes a lot out of you and so um to your point it's better for the larger scheme of things to make it a priority now. I think um, something you said a bit earlier about the lack of access and how our communities don't have access to things, which is um, a point that we talked about way earlier about how mental health resources are seen as a white privilege, but how that is also kind of a systemic structure that says that Because I think that things work the way that they're designed. And so to say that you can't have access to something that you need is a way, is a tool of oppression, right? To uh, withhold that is a way, um, is how um, it works against black people, is is how the system, um, and when we think about healthcare, right? We think we don't have universal healthcare in our country. So healthcare is something that, Poor communities and communities of color don't have access to. This is a systemic issue and a historical issue, um, but that lack of access has, um, I don't know, it, it has effects in, the, in our everyday lives. So I just kind of want also to address that point of access and how we need to pursue um, those resources because they are actively being held away from us um and it's purpose it's purposeful so we know that anything that happens with that intention it means that if we get access to those things it's exactly what we need to overcome um white supremacy or racism 
Yeah, I am so glad you segued in that. You, like, read my mind. <laughs> but you said something so powerful, which is that, like, we need to pursue access to these resources and not shy away from them. And something that I know you and I both are very, you know, aware of is the way, like, I feel like the Black community's aversion, this is generally speaking, obviously, towards pursuing help. It's not just this unjustified thing, right? Mm-hmm. And like you said, the system's working like it was designed to. It's it's not broken. It's just doing exactly what it was meant to do. And a lot of people say, our system's broken and we need to do this, we need to do that. It was never meant right. to function the way that we you know, expect it to. I feel like our system is working like a well-oiled machine, okay? <laughs> and, yep. um, you know, I think a lot of the the impacts that we're seeing, a lot of the the modern day real life implications of why so many black people won't even pursue healthcare needs like addressing mental health or if you need to go see a doctor you know a lot of times they'll be like oh there's a home remedy for that I don't want you to go see a doctor it's because of the lack of the general lack of trust of the healthcare system and it's justified it's backed up if we look at like any number of you know historical cases where Involving specifically black bodies and the commodification of black bodies, we will see that there's a clear trend in, you know, reason for why there's a lack of distrust. And, you know, a very timely subject, I feel like, is vaccinations yeah. against coronavirus. There are so many people who feel so adamantly that, you know, they purely should rely on the protection of, you know, their religious um, their their respective religious beliefs because they cannot trust the medical health system justifiably based off historical events. And I think one of the biggest, most well-known cases of this is actually the Tuskegee syphilis study. Um, and this is a very packed subject. But, you know, that alongside, like, maternal death rates of Black mothers... It's a huge trend of black mothers dying while they're giving birth to their children. And this ties back into something that you said earlier about, you know, people believing that we have super bodies and that we are less vulnerable to pain and injury and, and things such as that. And we find ourselves in situations where, you know, you know, you're doing something as as dangerous as giving birth to a human child. Right. And you're not, you're being neglected so poorly that you die on while you're giving birth to your child. There's a huge issue with that. And I think that, you know, there's so many more examples of healthcare failures against black people specifically throughout history and in our current day. That is part of the reason why we won't even pursue healthcare needs. We won't even pursue mental health, mental health support outside of the financial, you know, component of it. Yeah, that's really good. I think that, Um, your point about you know we know like you said it's not something that's just morally wrong right like we know that um, something like I think the vaccine us like scenario kind of like is symbolic of how we approach a lot of things as far as health and mental health of the fact that black people um, were most affected by coronavirus right our communities were ravished by uh, COVID, and to think that 
it's so backwards to think that we won't get the vaccine. But it actually makes so much sense because you use my ancestors um, to test and to make scientific advance advances. How do I know you're not doing that with me right now, right? This mistrust is so backwards in, um, in the way that we approach it because it, it makes sense that our communities would get the vaccine, but we won't, right? There's this vaccine hesitancy. And so that same thing can be applied in how your, also your example with the uh, Tuskegee clinical trials and how people um, in the medical system aren't working for the general well-being and the health of black people. They're working against us. We, uh, in many cases, they've seen us um, as um as objects, right, and commodities that can be used to advance their careers and advance science because they don't view us as humans, right? We are objects that uh, can be placed around and used as test dummies, blah, blah, blah. I feel very passionate about this. Anyways. Me too. I feel you. <laughs> exactly. But, um, and so we can see that with our mental health. Why do I need to, and you made this point about how, um, Pursuing mental health is another opportunity for us to be made vulnerable and have to relive our trauma. Why do I need to go to a psychiatrist, right? Or why do I need to have a therapist, blah, blah, blah? We don't trust them in the first place. And I'm generally speaking, but we don't trust them anyway. Um, and, I, and so I think also your point about how we rely on our religious beliefs. We talked about very early about how we need spirituality to help us overcome, right? It, it helps sustain us. It gives us hope because in this world, you need hope because if you're hopeless, um, that also takes a toll on your mental health. But um, I would say um, in the Christian faith and how I quoted scripture and things like that and how you learn that you can cast your cares on the Lord because he cares on you, right? Which is something I believe, but in many ways that can seem impractical, right? Like, what does that mean? And and I think that a part of that idea of, you know, having this spiritual faith or a religious beliefs to help you overcome mental struggle, which is great and it's necessary. I think that according to my faith, I know that faith without works is dead, right? So you need to have faith, but you also need to actively pursue mental well-being, right? That's a part of the works that go in tandem with your faith. And so we can't be impractical in the way that we pursue mental health. Our self-care should not be self-destructive. And so it's ultimately backwards if we um, are unrealistic and if we refuse to uh, make our health and our mental health a priority. Right. And I want to quickly jump back to what we're talking about with vaccinations and coronavirus and how our communities were so terribly impacted it's, it really is a show of distrust that so many of our people were dying at such dramatic and disproportionate rates, but people still were like, no way, I'm not getting that vaccine. You know, I don't trust government because I think they're putting trackers in the vaccine. I don't trust the government because I think they're putting diseases in the vaccine. And it seems so ridiculous at face value. It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, that doesn't make sense. That's unfounded. That's a ridiculous belief. But you know, literally what we were just talking about earlier with the, the Tuskegee syphilis study is it's not that far-fetched. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just to explain to anyone, like, who does not know what this is, because it is, a like, you, if you don't know what it is, you need to look into it. But I'm just going to, like, briefly explain what happens. 
So this happened in like from like the early 1930s to early 1970s. And it was conducted, it was a study conducted by the CDC, basically. And uh, basically the purpose of the study was to observe like the natural process of untreated syphilis. And so basically a bunch of rural black men were recruited in this study. And the incentive was that they would be able to get like free medical exams, free meals, burial insurance, amongst other incentives to participate in the study. About 600 men were involved and 400 of them had uh, syphilis. And it, it was it was it was terrible because what really went down was that the participants were never made aware that they were right. subjects to the studies designed to withhold medical treatment from them. So that they were they were being told that they were being tested for bad blood and they were never offered the known treatment by that point, which was penicillin. So so many people were still in this study for years and years and years, being uh, having treatment being withheld from them. When they, there was already a known, you know, already a known treatment available because of the sake of advancing science and seeing what would happen to the body if they kept, you know, how long would syphilis eventually affect their bodies. And I think the last death from this study was actually in January of 2004, which seems like so long ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Mind you, that was less than two decades ago. So how do you expect people in the like now in the wake of a, a new pandemic, of a new issue, a new healthcare crisis, to suddenly start trusting and believing immediately when a vaccine rolls out that they will not be affected? Because guess what? A lots of people who were being affected by this uh, outbreak are black people and people of color who are the first people who are going to run and get the va- the vaccine. So now people believe, oh, this is a trap for us again. Right. And so that's what I really wanted to do justice to what that study really was and why it's still affecting people today, why people, so many people are distrustful of our healthcare system and why people refuse to seek treatment. Um, it's very deeply wrapped up and that's only one example. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I think that understanding that and I think what we can't do is kind of like completely distance ourselves from history. We can view this as a historical event, but um, saying the last death was in 2004, that's in my lifetime, right? I was born in 2003. Like, that's kind of like absurd to think about um, and how these things are not that far away. And so the way that we need to understand is that these are def- these are deeply rooted issues in our society. And so it's not going to be like, well, you need that vaccine, so turn around, or you need to prioritize your mental health. So these are things that need to be um, unwoven. These are systems that need to be uh, torn down and uh, reworked, um, blah, blah, blah. But I think that that is a great point to understand, like, why something as simple as talking to a therapist, right, or uh, something like uh, mistrusting the the um, healthcare system means that we won't trust um, mental health diagnosis or medication, right? And so these are things that maybe our generation is maybe more comfortable with, but our parents aren't, right? Our parents don't understand this, or even our generation uh, 
understanding the history of things will have some hesitancy um, approaching or accepting into our lives. And so thank you for uh, like talking about the that um, the Tuskegee syphilis study and that and understanding how this is this is history, but this is today. Right. This is this is why things look the way they they do now. Um, I think that I guess kind of the last thing that I want to talk about before we kind of wrap up this conversation is like the importance we talked about. uh, We touched on this, right? The importance of our mental health and how it's important for um, longevity, right? It's important for our spirits. You talked about how um, not prioritizing our mental health is a survival mechanism right and how that this is what we do to survive quite literally um because we feel like we have to do it and so I kind of want to talk about um before we wrap up like what is some what are some practical things that we can do and also side note I know that we kind of like characterize a lot of these things to the black community but talking to people from all different cultures Um, and ethnicities and seeing how their lives um, go this is something that is kind of a universal universal um, thing that is true for communities of color that we kind of need to all collectively get out of but anyways what I was saying was um, what are some practical things that we can do to help us with our mental health right what can we do to um in our everyday lives that can help us be more um, educated about who we are, to be more in tune with ourselves, to prioritize. And then um, if you also want to speak broadly and systemically, you can do that as well. But kind of before we wrap up, that's the question that I'll ask. Well, I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind to me in thinking about how we can prioritize our own mental health and breaking a lot of these cycles is some, I don't know if you've seen this before, but on a lot of social media, there's a lot of people, a lot of black women in this case, will say things like, you know what, I'm sick of being the strong black woman. I'm sensitive. I am a crybaby. I need help sometimes. And I think like, that's a that's a good example of like something minor that a lot of people have been doing recently in normalizing vulnerability and normalizing breaking these stereotypes and these behaviors that end up just putting us in a loop later on. So I just think that, you know, one of the ways that we can break this is consistently allowing ourselves to not have to fit into this mold and not have to display certain behaviors as a mechanism for survival. What we find more and more, especially with our generation, I think this is part of the reason why we're so much more comfortable with acknowledging these things is that there, in many cases, it's okay. Like you can, you can trust your therapist. You can reach out to someone for help and hope, and you know, what would happen in the outcome ideally and typically is that you will find healing and that you will Mm -hmm. grow from it. And we don't have to loop these, you know, traumatic and, you know, normalized behaviors upon the youth and future generations. So I feel like that's just one of the bigger things that I've been thinking about is not feeling the need, making that choice, again, to just break the barriers that I feel are, are placed upon me. So it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to, to need help. It's okay to ask questions. 
and you know it's okay to accept that maybe I need to go and take care of my mental health yeah that's good um this idea of it is okay right like a life goes on um and we'll miss you when you take your break but the work is still here right like the work and what I mean by the work I mean um if this is like your everyday life or also if you're fighting systems of oppression right the work is still here when you come back so um I think that's good I think what we talked about earlier of how we kind of see things uh, as this is out my burden this is our burden that we have to take on to fight this um things that are larger like you said larger and older than us we need to kind of like dispel that that way of thinking because that's ultimately unproductive right so you don't have to take on everything um it's physically impossible and you're setting yourself up um to be disappointed to deal with that heartache to deal with that um mental um I don't know distress that overwhelming feeling but I think going back to this um idea of choice we have a choice and so that's one thing I can say I think that's what I learned also over quarantine um when um George Floyd was murdered I think something that really resonated with me was like I like I already said I'm a Christian so my idea was that um if God can take my sin, right, this is something that we all should be able to, like, if we really felt our sin, uh, we would know it, right? We wouldn't be able to do anything. But if God can take my sin, then he can also take the burden of racism. I don't have to feel the heaviness and the weight of racism. That didn't take away my passion to kind of be an activist or to be a political advocate but that means that I don't have to let this consume me and weigh me down so I kind of made that parallel if I don't have to carry the burden of my sin I can kind of give that up and give this un um untrue idea of how racism should affect me right I can give that up and um and not have to live with that so I would say that is my one tidbit nugget thing as a 17 year old that doesn't know that much about life about how we can deal with um our mental health struggles that sounded extremely powerful to me (laughs) (laughs) moral of the story go get therapy get vaccinated do what you need to do take your mental health days and really just lean into that because it will do more for you and future generations later on down the line than you know, allowing yourself to continue to carry those burdens, make the choice to break those those trends. Amen. That's good. I think that this episode was so packed, okay? We talked about so much. Um, and, okay, it just it gets me, like, so fired up. This was such, I, like, I really enjoyed this episode. This was, it was real deep, okay? We got into a lot of stuff, but anyways... I enjoyed this episode. Now, is there anything that you want to say kind of before we wrap up any uh, bottom line? Wink. Sorry, that's so cringy. (laughs) (laughs) So cringy. It was actually so funny. I love that. But yeah, just like what we were saying before, you know, you have a choice despite 
you know, the narratives that are being spread your way, you can make that decision and be a part of the generation that breaks these trends and gets us out of these loops. And I just think it's so important that we normalize the conversation around mental health and getting the resources you need and not normalizing the trauma. So I just think that, you know, this was so fun and so interesting. And I'm really glad we had this talk because it's very important and it's a conversation seldom had because it's so difficult. And we did unpack a lot, but you know, I think that there's so you know many ways that you could talk about this for so long. And so I just think it's I think it's a good place to start. Exactly. Thank you so much. I think that's so true. We talked about a lot. And through this conversation, I was like, that's a podcast idea. That's a podcast idea. Blah, blah. So I just was, I get so excited about this stuff because there is so much to talk about. Um, As y'all know, at the end of every episode, um, I like to ask an unrelated question because what we talk about is deep. It can be heavy, but I like to have uplifted spirits and not leave on a bad note. So my question at the end of the day, question of the day is, what is your um, guilty pleasure? Maybe TV show um, or YouTube channel or YouTube videos. What's your guilty pleasure um, that you just, you indulge in, uh, Nyla? Oh my gosh, so many things, especially (laughs) in the quarantine. (laughs) I'd say my most recent one is, um, like watching a lot of true crime documentaries and like videos oh, yeah. on YouTube. It's been it's really addicting. I didn't used to understand the appeal and I think it's because I was I was seeing so many people who were, you know, turning into something that it, it shouldn't have been. But when you really think about like the ethics and the legal processing and, you know, so many different aspects of it, it gets really interesting and you can kinda of, kinda of get caught in a loop. So that's been something I've been pretty interested in recently <laughs> that that is that resonates so well because i love that stuff and um anyone that knows me knows that i cannot watch horror movies i don't like to play with spirits and conjuring up anything but i will watch a true con- crime documentary i will watch something about i don't know a serial killer this is so weird to say because it's like this stuff is horrible but i will watch it because it's so interesting and it's so like crazy to think how they detach themselves from like humanity you know for you to be able to do this thing like you are Mm -hmm. really like inhumane with your own emotions and your own self like that's crazy yeah, one hundred percent. Don't even get me started because I will. We will have a whole part two podcast episode on true crime, but there's so much to unpack with it, and you know, learning about spreading awareness for supporting the victims and their families is also a really important aspect of it all. So it's just very interesting, and you can end up going down a rabbit hole if you if you let yourself. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I definitely go down YouTube rabbit holes more than I should, knowing I have work to do. But you know what? That is my mental health break that I'm taking. So I'm not going to be like, oh, man, I know I got work to do. I'm going to indulge and I'm going to enjoy my YouTube rabbit holes because they are what I need to replenish. Right. So I'm going to exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for validating me. So um, thank you, uh, Nyla. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I thought this was great. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Make sure that you give this episode, this podcast, a thumbs up. 
comment if you want make sure you subscribe do whatever you need to do so that i know that oh share it too because i love new listeners and please let me know what you think because i want to know what you think about my guests and the things that i'm talking about um and it makes me i just want to have some interaction whatever so do whatever you need to do so i know that you're enjoying this podcast series um and nyla i don't know if i warned you but my outro is really cringy and i have to warn every single guest that i am cringed out by my outro but i'm stuck with it at this point but anyway i'm excited to hear it (laughs) um i hope that everyone has a blessed day thank you for listening um and ttyl Dun dun dun. That was it. It's just really, I just say TTYL at the end. I hate it. Like, I thought it was funny and quirky, but now I'm just like, girl, shut up. <laughs> so, yeah. I love it. But, yeah, thank you. Bye. <laughs>